Hey everyone, welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Library Podcast. This is the show where we connect you with the brightest minds in the commercial real estate industry. From founders of the largest REITs in Canada to CEOs of the biggest development companies, prop tech companies in the world. We put you inside the boardroom to listen to what these thought leaders say. And today is no different. We have an absolute legend with us. He is the CEO of Fitzrovia. Adrian Rocca is joining us. Uh, Fitzrovia was founded only a few short years ago, and they are already the number one developer of rental housing in Toronto, and I think actually in the country. So we ask him, number one, how did he build this company? How did he go from an investment banking background into creating this absolute behemoth? And what is he seeing in the market today? What's the outlook given the crazy economic environment that we're in? You're going to absolutely love this podcast. Before we dive in, I want to say a quick thank you to our sponsor, Green Fox Capital. It's getting harder to do deals, and Green Fox Capital is the best source for commercial financing in Canada. Have a deal and want more attractive financing? Go to greenfoxcapital.com. Get in front of the best finance minds in the country. Oh, and for your brokers out there, on a side note, they pay massive referral fees. Uh, we absolutely love them. First and foremost, they do a great job. Check them out, greenfoxcapital.com. Our second sponsor is Portsmouth Residential. Portsmouth is Canada's first membership-based property management platform, and they are on a mission to modernize the rental experience for renters and homeowners in Canada. What makes Portsmouth different? Well, they'll get you more money. Uh, they do this with a flat rate membership fee, and they'll save you more time with 24-7 a 24-7 look into your investment through the owner's portal, and they'll give you more peace of mind with their exclusive rental income and eviction protection program. This is property management the way that it should be done. Make more money, get more time back, and enjoy peace of mind. New homeowners can sign up in as little as 30 minutes. Visit portsmouth.ca and become a member today and find your happy place. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Library podcast. I'm Dama Tamanawala. You know my co-host, Garrett McGilvery. And joining us today is the CEO and founder of Fitzrovia, Adrian Rocca. Thanks for joining us. No, thanks for having me, guys. We're, uh, we're excited to be here yeah. in this luxury office. It's beautiful. Yeah, we, uh, we were originally on the east side of the floor plate. And uh, anyway, we've been growing obviously very quickly and needed more space. And so during COVID, took the whole floor and wanted to create a very different concept. Yeah, it's nice for the, the viewers can only see the, uh, a couple parts of this, but it, we were talking about it before. It feels like a hotel, feels like a nice like the way that my girlfriend would decorate our house <laughs> type of thing, you know, right down to the flooring. So awesome. Um, why don't we, why don't we start off with a, if you don't mind giving a, a little overview of where Fitzrovia is today, just 10,000 feet, you know, how many projects have you guys done? What are you working on? Yeah. And then we'll go backstory. Yeah. So we, um, we would be the largest uh, developer of Class A rental in the city, uh, if not the country right now. So we have 6,000 units in development, uh, so $6 billion of assets under management. Uh, we basically uh, do JVs. Historically, JVs are separate accounts with large pension plans of public institutions. Uh, we are fully vertically integrated, so we develop, construct, asset property manage all entirely in-house right now. We also have a schools business, which we're rolling out next year, and all of our young families 
family uh, buildings, which is really unique. Uh, we have a healthcare partnership and platform with the Cleveland Clinic. And then in terms of total towers right now, we just completed seven towers across the city. Uh, and we have 22 in total in various stages of development, whether it's recently completed, so including those seven, under construction or soon to be put under construction next couple months. And what's this schools program? Yeah, the schools program. So we we um, just saw a segment of the market that was really known was targeting people were talking about. Uh, so we thought there's a business case to go after young families that were priced out of the for sale market. Uh, most of the high rise product that's being built is you know smaller one beds. Uh, we thought there's a business case to do two, three bedroom units, larger, more liberal suites, uh, but you need to figure out the school solution. So if you look at the downtown school system, everything's at capacity, and we thought we could treat it as an extension of our existing amenity package and actually plug in our own school. So fell in love with a couple of school concepts in London and New York, and so this is a class A beautifully appointed uh, school offering. So it's going to look like the rest of the building, uh, really a best in class, you know, school offering. And we're going to be rolling that out over the next five years. We'll have five schools that open up across the city and expand beyond that. Will you guys be operating that school? We are. So it's, uh, it's 100% owned by us. We have a chief academic officer uh, that's just about to be appointed uh, that's going to run that program for us. Uh, it's at subsidized tuition just for our residents. But if there's open uh, spots after the fact, we'll open it to the general public. Uh, but it's entirely owned by Fitzrovia. And like what, grade one, you learn Argus and... Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it, these are small schools. So I would say uh, by size, you're kind of, it was going to be daycare up to grade one. We've actually compressed the years because of the $10 a day daycare kind of skews the, the operating model a little bit. So we will do a little bit of preschool, JK, SK grade one. And so we may extend beyond that uh, as of when these schools grow and the master plans get bigger and bigger. It's very cool. Yeah. So, and just to just to finish up on that, so that so is that if I'm picturing a tower, is that just within the tower, or is there is that in the podium section? Yeah. So it's it's within the podium section because we also want to leverage within that school offering. So you have the classroom setting, but we also want to tap into our amenities. Like the amenities, right. if you've toured any of our buildings, are really unique. And so we're doing full basketball courts, and so that is the gymnasium during the day for the kids. We have really cool, mm. you know, outdoor kids' crash or play area. Uh, we have our swimming pool, so they'll be able to use that in the you know in the summer months. Cool. Uh, so it's all encompassing, but it's all in the podium. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, okay. And so you have seven apartment buildings that you've recently completed. Yep. And can you just talk about quickly, like a couple of those locations of where some people who know Toronto would know these big addresses, right? Yeah. So uh, Dufford and Queen, Liberty Village, uh, Young and Egg, College and Spadina were the existing. And then... Next year and next year, we have two uh, towers uh, with uh, a kind of quasi-connected podium with some bridges uh, down at Church and Queen Street. So it's 542 units. Uh, and then we have Yorkdale that's very much under construction. That's a three-tower development that we have going on there. Yeah. And then beyond that, so Blur Collegiate, we have a multi-tower site, 260 King East, we have a multi-tower site, et cetera, et cetera. It's, I think it's absolutely insane, by the way, because I look... Like I live in Bathurst and Lakeshore, as you know, and and going across that bridge and you see Bentall's building, you see Fitzrovia's building, we're looking across the Liberty Village. It's cool that you have that much of an impact. Yeah. We look, we love the business. We're really, really passionate, almost obsessed by the, you know, the the multifamily business. I just feel very fortunate in life that I fell in love with 
you know, a, it's a passion of mine, fell in love with, uh, you know, my job um, and obviously built a business around it. So yeah, I think it's the most rewarding thing that taking a raw piece of land, developing it, grinding it out for three, four years, and then seeing it be a living and breathing community. Lots of people living in it, enjoying the amenities, and then constantly now, because it developed a core strategy, we're not merchant builders, we're constantly investing in that experience and, and seeing that come to life, look at Google reviews, look, look at resident satisfaction surveys, and also use that data to help improve our future projects, right? Design better, program it better, et cetera, et cetera. We're really data junkies at the end of the day. Yeah, it's a, it's a, beautiful thing that you like even the segment of the market it's really interesting and it's it's kind of there's a bunch of different ways to make money in real estate but it's it's cool that to have happy tenants because you can make money at the the, the very bottom end, you yes. can make money in the middle um and and it's cool to just create an experience that people actually love um anyways you don't have people striking outside your house you know, so that's, that's, that's part yeah, of it. look, that's, that risk is always going to be there, right? We really invest heavily in that customer experience. And I think if you put your heart on your sleeve and you're always trying, we're not perfect. Uh, we very much try to strive to be perfect. We definitely work at it every day. We're going to make mistakes, right? And we're going to trip and we're going to stumble. And uh, as long as we learn from those mistakes and we're doing what is what we think is in the best interest of our tenants, and we're always thinking about that, I think at the end of the day that will, will, it'll pay off in terms of platform value, in terms of our ability to get access to more institutional capital and continue to grow the platform like it's not a one and done concept. That's the nature of multifamily development. Is to, and, but because we're owning these assets long term, it's definitely not a one and done concept. So we're constantly thinking through materiality, locations, investing in people. Like it's a big part of our business. Yeah. Okay. So I, I love it, by the way. So let so I've thought about this discussion, and if, and Garrett and I have thought about it in terms of backstory. We want to know how you got to this place, this exciting place, because it make you make it look easy, but I know it wasn't easy. Yeah. Um, and then what's happening now in the industry, we have rising construction costs, Doug Ford's making all sorts of announcements, yeah. and then a little bit about the outlook and the future plans. So yeah, so I'll, I'll maybe start from the very beginning and yeah. and uh, shoo me along if I'm going too slow or it's boring. Uh, I want this to be an exciting interview and, and podcast. Uh, so I graduated in early 2000s from Western Business School, really uh, you Western guy as well. Yeah. Are you as, as well? <laughs> no. Yeah. We, uh, we, so I played football all four years, really a team, you know, guy, like I love the sport and love being involved in a, in a big team like that. I really draw on a lot of those experiences still to this day. You what, know, what'd you play by the way? Uh, so I was a linebacker and then I ate my way down to the D line eventually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so first year I was 225 and I finished off at 305 and, uh, had some really good teams, never made it to the championship round. We always got beat by Queens or Mac, uh, but played with some really great players and still to this day, some really good friends. Cool. Uh, so went to business school at Ivy really kind of fell in love with investing the concept around investing capital markets. But I also fell in love with uh, real estate and kind of grew up in in the industry. A lot of my relatives are kind of in trades. My dad was a you know small private investor uh, and just really loved the tangibility around the asset class. And and so I always said, okay, well, what about marrying the two together? Does that make sense? And someone told me, well, real estate private equity is is definitely an avenue. So I said, that's really fascinating. How do I get there? Well, let me work my way backwards. And so I uh, got into investment banking, wanted to get a really strong quant skill set. And then I could leverage that as I 
you know, kind of got into real estate, private equity. Uh, so I joined Credit Suisse first yeah. Boston during the first Boston days. Uh, it's now just purely Credit Suisse. I was in the M&A mm-hmm. group. So two years in Toronto, two years in London, England. Uh, so moved over to London in 2006. Smart uh, guy out of out of Ivy, by the way. You get a Credit Suisse, credit Suisse job. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, no, it was... Uh, it's <laughs> they a were gr- not knocking on my door, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, it was a great school. And so you get access to, if you want to get into banking or consulting, there's lots of those type of opportunities. And and so uh, joined the Toronto office, moved over in, in 06 to London. This is a bull market move. If you were ranked a certain level, you had the ability to move offices. And I was going to do that for a year, max to and then come back home and just get my feet wet in another global market. And I always kind of loved London. I spent a lot of time in New York and I just wanted to to experience, you know, another major mm-hmm. city. And so made the move over to London and loved it so much. I stayed seven years. Like it's just a really fascinating market. The, you know, the types of people that you're interacting with, the, the quality of the travel, the nightlife, they're so forward on design. Like it just really, really enjoyed it. I uh, met my now wife six months before I was about to go over. And so we did long distance for a year. And thankfully, she came over uh, and did her master's in wow. public policy and, and nutrition, uh, pivoted away from this. She was a CA uh, by designation. Uh, and then we stayed. I, I then wanted to make a jump into private equity. Those four years into CS. And it was either you're going to make a longer term career in banking or you're going to pivot. And so Apollo, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Apollo, but there'd be a kind of a top five global private equity shop. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I joined their real estate group and their pan-European fund. Uh, so they just raised about one and a half billion in uh, in an opportunistic vehicle. Is going to invest across Europe. So we are investing as far east as Russia, down to Turkey, uh, multifamily strategy so, in Germany. And so you you joined that company in two thousand seven. Two thousand seven, uh, end of two thousand seven, uh, I joined the company. So just before the market was turning, we right. just raised that vehicle. Thankfully, perfect. And so we saw. We'll talk about some of the lessons learned. We saw, you know, the the dealing of legacy funds during the downturn, and also the ability to be opportunistic mm-hmm. with with a with a capital source in our fund. Uh, so that was a really fascinating experience. But we we're, you know, investing throughout Europe. I was on a condo strategy in London. I was uh, overseeing an office portfolio in Switzerland. Actually, uh, uh, a shopping center development. This is definitely a bull market move at the time in Zaporizhia in Ukraine. I oversaw their Ukraine assets uh, and an office development in Kiev, just outside Kiev on the Ring Road, uh, and really loved that experience. I was around some really, really smart people. Uh, The pace was, was, you know, very high. It's a high-octane shop. It was... Uh, a lot of healthy debate around the table. You definitely need to needed to know your stuff. Right. You would always get challenged on deals you're putting forward and then your ability once you bought the deal to manage it. And mm-hmm. so there is always direct recourse on what you said in your underwriting and what the model said and your ability to perform with your operating partner in line with those assumptions. So I love that accountability. I thought there's really good alignment of interest in the private equity structure right. and how they it compensated people. And I thought long-term, I said, if I was ever going to create a business, I really wanted to take those principles and insert that and be the, the core backbone of our DNA. And that's really what we have at Fitzrovia, which I'll come on to and, and talk about. Like you're just about to say something. Well, I have, I have a few questions. I'm, I'm thinking about some of the deals that you were doing back then. You said uh, Ukraine, retail, opportunistic, you know, like what, what were some of the debates happening at the time uh, when you're, you know, 2008, 2009, 
tougher market? Like what sort of opportunities are you seeing and how, how does that look around the boardroom? Like hindsight's a beautiful thing, right? So I would say some of the conversations I hear about in Toronto where it is extremely resilient, very strong macro story, there's certain areas in Toronto that will never go down. I just completely disagree. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, I look at Knightsbridge in 2008, 2009, you know, went down 40% peak to trough. Now it recovered quickly, relatively quickly, but mm-hmm. they, there was definitely a very significant drop in that market. And this, so, I'm showing my age here. Knightsbridge, what is that? So Knightsbridge would be, yeah, <laughs> it's a good that So Knightsbridge would be like one of the like ritzy parts, neighborhoods, residential neighborhoods in, in London. Oh, got it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Very rich. It's kind of like maybe the equivalent of Rosedale or Forest Hill. Gotcha. gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And, and so, uh, you know, that was definitely a lesson learned. Um, I also kind of look back and how you talk yourself out of, you, you start overpricing risk, right? And so one, one great example, we saw, you know, cap rates blow it really, really quickly, right? So very difficult to raise capital institutions were faced with, you're hearing it today, the denominator effect, their overweight real estate, public markets dropped their ability to deploy capital in attractive situations is constrained because, you know, they have too much real estate allocation, right? So you're seeing that theme come back into the market today. And it's something we're, we're very mindful of. Uh, but, you know, I look at a Sainsbury lease. Do you know what Sainsbury's is? It's like our equivalent of Loblaws, like the market leader, mm-hmm. grocer in the UK. And so you could get a brand new 15-year shed lease to Sainsbury with a mothership guarantee at like an eight cap, eight and a half cap. And you're worried about, well, it's a binary risk on one covenant, where the bonds trading, right? And we ended up passing on a bunch of those deals. Looking back, you're kicking yourself, right? Like some of the lessons learned, well, it's grosser, it's defensive in times of recession, right? We should have absolutely been doing those type of deals. And I'll also say we ended up getting our hands caught in deals that, you know, had limited upside by structure but it had a disproportionate amount of time required to invest in that asset, underwrite that asset, and turn that asset around. Mm. And so I, when I look at kind of margin, your ability, you only have so many hours in a day is to spend time on certain initiatives or certain deals. It's really, really important to take a step back and say, is this the best use of my time? If we're in a buying window today, right, there's only so many hours and so many resources you could pull on. Where do you want to fundamentally organize your time and allocate your time? And I look back at the, you know, some of the calls we made for could have been relationship reasons or for other reasons that, you know, looking back, you're kind of scratching your head. But these are all great lessons learned that I, I still draw on today. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I'm I mean, we have a ton on the market right now and seeing, thank God, we have strong relationships with folks, but they are looking at so much. Right. So you're, you're certainly you're conscious of their time and, yeah. and how you how you can even get attention in a market like this. Yeah. You know. Um, OK, so you, you're do, you're you're doing a lot in 2008, 2009. And then how does that kind of evolve? How did you get back home to to Toronto? So uh, five years in and I just started getting a pullback to Toronto. My family's here. I think it's honestly the world's greatest city, especially to raise a family. Uh, we were starting to think, my wife and I, about having our, our first baby. 
we had our first baby and it was time to come back home. And I also think the longer you wait in a place like Europe, it's really hard to come back, right? There's only so many seats. You're coming back without senior, certain senior relationships. Right. It's a different profile. And so I wanted to not miss that window and it just naturally fit together. So moved back in 13, uh, joined Tricon Capital and I wanted to stay in real estate private equity. But at the time, I only knew of a couple folks that play in real estate private equity. Mm -hmm. Obviously at the Brookfields, some of the pension plans have, you know, a direct offering and that's quasi private equity uh, very much so. But I wanted to still be more traditional private equity and had a friend at Tricon. And so when you come in and meet the team and uh, they were very much at the time a private equity shop. Now that it's a very different business, it's more of a public REIT uh, with their single family rental exposure. But at the time, they were a really interesting profile. And I also wanted a certain size that you could actually move the needle with what you brought to the table, create real platform value. Gotcha. Uh, and I thought there was really nice symmetry uh, with the team and and the culture, and and they were a natural fit. So I came back in thirteen and joined them and. I did their first public, uh, kind of major public market deal post IPO. We raised uh, about 170 million of equity on the TSX and bought out a number of LPs on a legacy fund. And so they that brought permanent capital into the business. They were growing single family rental, using proceeds to continue to uh, invest and grow that business. Uh, and then uh, one of their longstanding partners at the time uh, came to 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 the management team and said. We're heavily invested in multifamily in the U.S. Uh, we would love to invest in Canada. We love the macro story up here, but no one's really doing it in a dedicated way. Can you figure it out? So it's basically tasked to figuring it out. And very quickly, it's there's a lot of operating leverage in this asset class, and you need to drive rent. There's, land is your land. Your fixed costs are your fixed costs. Your municipal costs are your municipal costs. Financing, there's various ways to improve your position, but that's really on the margin. And so we thought there was a really interesting opportunity in the luxury rental space and, and being able to really push top line revenue. And so trying to figure out a way to how to do that, it's certain locations that you're going to focus on. It's the quality of the build. It's the experience. It's your ability to kind of drive ancillary revenue really is what unlocked it. So I ended up uh, doing our first deal with uh, Steve Diamond uh, on the Selby. Yeah. Uh, so we uh, bought that deal. Actually, it was initially going to be with that pension plan. And then uh, they had a change of regime and the CIO moved on. So we had to backfill with another partner, which we did. Uh, and then 57 Spadina, which is uh, the the tailor right now, which is right at uh, Spadina and King Street, the old winner's department store. Mm. And then the last deal I did was the James, which is the Summerhill Redevelopment Lands as well. And then separately, uh, I also got into manufactured housing. Do you guys know anything about manufactured yeah. housing? Yep. Okay. Yeah. So love that space. Uh, it's a really phenomenal business model and I love the risk profile. Maybe just describe it because not everybody knows. So you're in what, so on the low end is trailer parks. On the high end, I would say these are modular home communities. Uh, so you own the dirt, the land, the infrastructure, the amenity center, and you lease pads to homeowners, right? Uh, and so these are not necessarily trailers that they could roll off your lot. It's very sticky income. You have rolling 12-month leases. Fannie and Freddie love the income profile, so it's easy to get it financed. And it's very, very defensive, especially in a recession, right? It's affordable housing at mm -hmm. its bare minimum. Right. Um, and just to stick on that for a second, Ontario, actually Canada has a lot of MHC, a decent amount. It's kind of hidden. 
Yeah. But is that a market that you look at? Is that an asset class that you still look at? I know it's like different regulation wise across provinces, but yeah, it's definitely a market we I'd love to get back into at some point. The entry point has to make sense and the scale has to make sense. I'd say the lesson learned, you know, we built it to about 200 million of gross asset value and then ended up selling it to Blackstone in 18 months. But it was a lot of heavy lifting, a lot of onesies and twosies yeah. in terms of acquisitions. And it's hard mm -hmm. to find. Uh, so it's if I could get a line of sight to a certain critical mass, uh, we would definitely look at it again. But right now we're really focused on our core business. Yeah, right. there okay. you go. Yeah. Um, Okay, so let's talk about let's talk about then how you make the jump from Tricon to starting Fitzrovia, and I and I know maybe even touch on the name because I listened to a podcast that you were on. I know what what the name came from, but describe that as well. Yeah, so um, look, we kind of get into. I'm very public about it. I really think the world of Tricon and and the management team there, but we just got to a point where, you know, I wanted different things in my career. They wanted probably different things out of someone running that seat. And um, it was just time to figure it out and move on. And and so I'm very, very fortunate that they put me in the seat to run, you know, the, that platform. And I was able to then get a window and a CV to go and leverage that and build a business around it. I al always had, you know, the the desire to be an entrepreneur. It's always been in my blood and it's always been a goal of mine. I had a romantic vision of what that is and we could talk about that. <laughs> some of which is true, some of which is not true. Um, and and so it was, you know, time to just figure it out, right? I, I you know, basically very public actually saying this. So that's the political answer. You know, I get let go from from Tricon and I get home. Uh, and they let go of you. Yeah, yeah. No, oh, and, big mistake. Now <laughs> it's I I wear it with a badge of honor, but and I I again no ill will. Uh, but they you know they they definitely think very highly of them. But I remember coming home and uh, I had uh, just bought a house and a couple kids, and it was time to just figure it out. And so I told my wife that I, you know, have a plan and really I did not have a plan. And, uh, I ended up calling my father-in-law that night and said, you know, this is what happened. And, uh, don't worry, I'll figure it out. I have a, I have a plan. And he said, you know, I had a friend of mine who lost his job twice. Uh, and what he did for six months was drive a truck. I'd recommend you driving a truck. I said, I have no disrespect <laughs> to truck drivers. I love <laughs> truck drivers, but that's not for me. And that so would have painted a very different future for yeah, you. Yeah. And I know. so I, uh, w had uh, a number of folks reach out. Um, and you know, a lot of people were looking at getting into rental and, uh, decided that rental could be a really interesting you know, dedicated platform to build where there's a lot of institutional cap capital coming into the space, but very few pure play, you know, experienced operators in that space. And so uh, met with a couple folks, uh, Center Core Developments, who I would say uh, we very much share a lot of the same culture and principles. And Andrew Hoffman's a very good friend and Shemez Verani, very good friend and the rest of the team there. And uh, they believed in the vision and saw the vision early days. And wanted to build out a rental division. And so we said, why don't we, you know, do it together? They had a couple assets that were earmarked for rental. And so why don't you vend them in and we'll co-develop some of those together and then we'll grow the platform and take a piece of the the equity of the, of the platform. So that's exactly what we did. And that was five and a half years ago, five years in August. Uh, and then since then we have grown to that 6 billion AUM number and team of about 120 will be about 160 by kind of Q2 next year and 200 by the end of next year. 
it's it's so funny that you say that because I, you know, I was look, I was researching a bunch of stuff, Garrett and I, before this podcast, and I think I found a podcast from you from 2020, and it was 20 employees, potentially two billion, uh, you know, in construct in the pipeline, and now it's oh, yeah, now it's completed COVID and through yeah. all this stuff, and it's just it's a an insane incline, so. Yeah, I, I uh, look, I, I, I'll be very open, right, as, as it relates to what that looks like. From the outside, it looks pretty maybe inside. You're just worried about blocking and tackling and executing and, like, really building the business the right way. You don't really have time to kind of appreciate what's happening around you and, and kind of what the story is looking like. You just focus on on execution. So I, I, you know, definitely appreciate what the last five years have looked like and very, very thankful for our stakeholders, our shareholders, our capital partners, our senior management team, and the rest of the team, they're just phenomenal people. Uh, but you're constantly in the weeds working on blocking and tackling versus kind of the story, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make a lot of sense. So you're like, one thing that we're always interested in is what's the system that you've built and like how, you know, you're a big systems guy. Yeah. So you know, I think about as we kind of scale our operations and the different things that we do, me as a broker, Garrett as a, as a lender, as a mortgage broker, um, how do you put those systems in place? So can you talk about the early days when you moved over from Tricon to start your own uh, venture? Did you, like, who were some of your first hires and, and like, what were some of the critical steps that, that took place just to get you moving? Yeah, I, I would say, so... I'll maybe take it a step back. I would have said that what I did at Tricon, you build a business, right? When you build a vertical. In reality, and it was kind of the biggest eye-opener, is I had a big infrastructure around me, right? I had a whole accounting team. I had legal. Yeah. I had everyone around me that you're just now focused on the business plan and your ability to kind of grow dedicated people within that vertical and go and execute. And it's typically with, you know, an off balance sheet operating partner that you're JVing with, which is in the MH space. So when I, you know, kind of first day at Fitzrovia, the conversations around what accounting system are we going to use? I have no idea what accounting system we're going to use. So you're, you kind of go through the pros and cons and the benefits and that has evolved over time. So I'd say the, the early day decision-making you know, I I found very wild and very fascinating and interesting, and I was not prepped for it. And that's back to the romanticism around being an entrepreneur. Some things are really cool and sexy and, and things that you're really proud on. Some of the things is just flat out, you know, it's just necessity of the business and growing the business. Um, we end up getting a really strong uh, accountant in Mike Cavello to uh, basically be, you know, kind of my my second or third hire at the time, um, you know, brought in an investments person, brought in a who could, you know, kind of do a few things more broadly, brought in a development person. What is an investments person? Is that like capital uh, relationship? Uh, it's more like kind what? of modeling and a little bit of corporate finance and putting, you know, books together with a pitch book or you know, monthly report. It's really holistic gotcha. at that point. Gotcha. Uh, it's not like an investment banking investments mm -hmm. person or, a, you know, an investments person at a private equity shop. It's a little bit more holistic, okay. more of a business lead, I would say. Then I brought in a development person. I brought in a construction person. And then you slowly kind of round out the team. You got your, you know, critical verticals where one person is in place and you're running two projects. And then that 
two projects goes to three and four projects and you got to start filling underneath them and investing in those people. And so I feel really fortunate. I've had five years to create it from a really blank canvas, what I thought was a unique culture. And so some of the things that I thought really worked at other shops that were at and some of the things that I want to stay away from uh, that I really didn't like. And so uh, selection of people is where you start first and foremost, and the ability to really go out and find some of it's luck. Some of it, we have done a good job getting smarter around hiring and we go through a pretty rigorous hiring process right now, hmm. but to make sure we're hiring really good people that are really strong, enthusiastic, have a real great sense of purpose. And they get out of bed every morning with a sparkle in their eye and they want to engage, right? That's fundamentally important, right? I say this a lot. I wish we could say we split atoms. We are not, right? And so very few industries are. that The person that wins at the end of the day is that person that gets out of bed every morning and wants to make a difference and really feels like they're coming to work every day and doing something special. And so that's that's where we, we spent a lot of time up front around finding those people because those are the people you could build businesses around and verticals around. They're coachable, right? You could work with them. You could roll up your sleeves. They're, they got thick skin. You could... You know, you could talk through, and I'm definitely not perfect, right? You're talking through a lot of your lessons learned. You're pushing one another. You're engaging. And that's really what made Fitzrovia and continues to make Fitzrovia, I think, really special, right? And not all the hires have worked out, right? The, the nature around, I talk about first-round draft picks a lot, right? Like how many first-round draft picks work out? You know, how many mm -hmm. millions of dollars are teams spending on the selection of that person, right? They're interviewing coaches, family Cognitive testing, personality right. testing, looking at a million, you know, pieces of tape, right? And piecing it all together. And I don't know, 20% workout, 15% workout, depending on the draft year, plus or minus. And so we spend a lot of time there, you know, trying to find the right people that fit within our DNA. And we talk about it a lot. It's a narrow funnel of someone that would fit within kind of Fitzrovia's culture. It's cool that you guys are so mission driven. I mean, we talk about this sometimes because I'm sure you attract a lot of great people, especially now. Um, but, you know, during, during COVID, the great resignation, I, I certainly know that amongst uh, like my brokerage, you can't find people. Yeah. You know, it's just weird. You know, we'll hire, just get, get them in yeah, the door, I know, I know. right? We'll find out if they work later. Um, but, uh, but anyways, a little bit of a different model. Yeah. Different model. I also think we were a benefactor during COVID just because it was a, it's a high growth company. It's got a unique proposition from the outside looking in and people that want change during COVID and a lot of people were really having those conversations internally in their mind with their spouses. I feel like we ended up actually really bringing in a lot of great talent over the last two years. Whereas I think our competitors and you know, other kind of industry norms and themes felt very different. Uh, you know, we are, we work in the office five days a week. We had no pushback around that. Uh, it's, it's a very, very different culture here. Right. Yeah. Um, do you ever offer your employees a cheaper stay as a benefit and then, you know, cash in and get cheaper financing? For affordability requirements. <laughs> that's, that's what I want to do. Because like 40 people living on a floor and just everybody has $900 rent. Yeah. Uh, no. we, we do allow uh, uh, the team to uh, rent for an extra month rent free uh, in any of our properties. So that's that's the, the one inducement. But no, we don't have floors of Fitzrovia. 
employees, uh, team members so. that live there. Uh, Markdown. Right. <laughs> right. Um, so I, okay. So I, I, I want to get into where we are today and a bit of like modern, there's a lot going on in the market right now. Um, but just last thing on kind of building the company, you said it at the beginning of this podcast, you are the largest, uh, probably in Canada, developer of this type of housing, you know, at, at this scale, best city in the world. What did, what did you believe five years ago that, that nobody else believed? And why have you been successful when, like, nobody else is really doing this? There's still only a handful of guys doing it. Yeah, I'd say one, one of those, so maybe take a step back. We'll talk about cost of capital and lining up with the right cost of capital, right? Which is obviously fundamental to our business model uh, versus condo developers or private families that have historically been condo developers. It's a very different value proposition if you're just focusing on maximizing profits on every single project, right? So the condo model inherently has got a big advantage there. Um, but as it relates to, I remember hearing, you know, five years ago, uh, and then even when I started at Tricon, that lecture, you know, a U.S. centric operating model, multifamily model does not work here, right? Canadians are fundamentally different. And I just disagree, right? I think the concept around walking into your, you know, lobby, it's really animated. It feels like a really nice luxury hotel and you have all the services that you're looking for. You're investing in that community experience. There's one or two social events a week, beautifully, beautifully appointed suites. Like who wouldn't want to live in that experience, right? Who wouldn't like well, the luxury hotel business is a global business that, you know, certainly works. And I appreciate it could be this. You could make the argument the same domestic traveler that's mm -hmm. going from hotel to hotel, but it just, I disagree, right? That works in lots of different geographies and different backgrounds and so that's where it started and you just get really passionate about you know what that experience looks like and how do you invest in that experience and how do you really make it remarkable and so we uh, do a lot of focus groups and started playing around with the concept whether it's the lobby and how do you create the warmth around that lobby versus what maybe the condo developers were doing is this like really stoic and we call it the art gallery concept right it looks great it looks great on a rendering but do you really want to live there does it feel like home right and so we want you know, the lobby to be the pub. We want that lobby to be the living room, you know, where everyone's going to, and if you go to the Waverly and you go to the Parker, that's exactly what you feel, right? It's, it is busy, right? We have an integrated it's bar. Cool. We have an integrated coffee shop in there. It's, it? it's highly, highly animated. We have a great sense of smell. It's beautifully appointed. We have the concierge right there. Uh, we will put a mezzanine typically, and so we'll directly connect those spaces and make it really aesthetically pleasing to the eye. Uh, and so we really, really invest heavily in that concept. And then you kind of build from there. Okay, well, what type of amenities does someone want to have, right? And so we'll poke and prod with new amenities and test it and data test it in the market. But, you know, one of the examples we talk about a lot is the is the gym. And so the gym you hear, condo developers, it looks beautiful on a rendering, it gets delivered, you have no sense of proportion, it's undersized, it's under-equipped, doesn't replace a gym membership, right? Usually you're value engineering that space anyway at the end of the day as a condo developer. And so I said, well, we, if you're going to put in a gym, it's got to replace a gym membership. So it's got right. to be commercial grade. And so we, they're all hammer strength equipment. These are official hammer strength performance centers. We ended up branding all of our amenities. So all of our gyms are called the temple. Maybe we spin it out as a separate business line in the future. Maybe we don't, but want it to look and feel like it's commercially operated. That's an exclusive club just for our residents. And then it, it kind of built from there. So like, 
you know, our, our ability to talk about the value proposition really is what unlocks it, right? So we're trying to push top line, you know, rent and generate rent premiums. But when I'm looking at the end user, the resident, what are they actually seeing and what are they receiving for paying that rent? Mm. And does that make sense? And so one of the biggest misconceptions when people look at a rental tone is we're going after the top. I hear it all the time, 1% or 5% of the market. In reality, we're not. If you look at a 30% shelter cost income ratio, right, you're going after, and whether it's individual roommates that are partnering up or it's households that are living, you know, partnering up in a one or two bedroom suite, we're going after the top 25, 30% of the market. That's who could afford to live in our, in our properties, right? But you have to look at what that includes, right? And so that's really what is what unlocks it. And then if you look at we're real, again, data driven. If you look at our conversion ratios, typical industry benchmarks. And so how like, well, how does the market receive it, right? So we're generating 15% plus or minus rental premiums relative to the market, rent per square foot, or even if you look at aggregate data, if you look at raw rents as well. But as what, soon as what, someone, sort of, what sort of rents per square foot are we talking about? So at the Parker, we're at 545 right now a foot, uh, which is our young and egg property. And so that would comfortably be a 50% premium. But if you look at a tour to a lease conversion, typically the industry benchmark is 15%. That's a really healthy benchmark. We're at 35 to 40%, right? So as soon as someone is actually walking into our, 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 our building, our property for a tour, we're converting them at two to three times the industry average. Wow. Wow. By the way, I like the way that you frame that as in, because 30, what did you say? 30% household income should be your shelter costs. Um, but it's not just one person. It's a family. It's a person with their partner. Yeah, roommates. And so it really is not as, might not be as bad as it, as it seems in some cases. So, yeah. um, so, okay. I want to be conscious of time here, but can you, can you tell us like, let's just fire off a bunch of, a bunch of questions in terms of, like what's happening today? What's the market has changed? Like construction costs have run wild. We have interest rates up another seventy-five basis points in the U.S. Like Canada, we're, we're hiking the same. Um, how is this impacting your environment? And and how are you dealing with this in, in a building setting? Look, it, it is a hot topic. Everyone's talking about it now. I would say focus. So speed of execution mitigates some of that. We have a, an engineering team, so we're things that we can't control. So unit rates are one thing that we cannot control. We're susceptible to the rest of the market, but smart design we can control. And so if you look at our, the composition of development team, it's structural engineers, mechanical engineers, civil engineers. And so we are peer reviewing everything, right? We want to be widget manufacturers in the apartment business. We have a floor wow. plate for young professionals. We have a floor plate for young families. We have a floor plate for downsizers. And so we want to standardize as much of that as possible. And we're peer reviewing structure. We're double checking riser calculations to make sure they're not over engineered. We're doing everything we can to let leverage that expertise to simplify the design to keep our costs in check. And then we're using our size and scale uh, when we negotiate with trades to invest in those relationships, but also try to get, you know, beneficial pricing relative to the one-off developer that's just doing one or two towers, right? So there's obviously a different concept or different economies of scale that you're able to achieve in terms of your hard costs. So that's how we're trying to mitigate you know, the costs, the violent swings and, and hard costs. Mm. That is a very different conversation today, though, I would say. The last, like, month or two months, it's, I would say, trades are coming back looking to fill voids. A lot of projects have been canceled. Wow. 
You know, mm-hmm. you know the stats. Half the high-rise projects have just been shelved yeah. or canceled. And so that was in their queue. And now they're trying to fill voids for next year. So it's a different conversation today. I'm definitely seeing, you know, costs not normalized, but we're not seeing an, a, a continued acceleration in, in, in hards. Uh, that being said, what's hurting us is financing, right? Yeah. So our cost of boring, you know, went from, you know, let's just talk about base rate. I'm not going to give away your spreads, uh, but base rates of 41 basis points on BA is now to, you know, 4.1, 4.2%. That really hurts, especially as a levered investor, a levered buyer, right? That really, really hurts. And then further to that, now we're getting into valuation adjustments, right? Is there a valuation adjustment? Is there not a valuation adjustment in class A multifamily cap rates? Now, I appreciate I'm biased, but I would say firmly we're at a three and a half cap, if not, below that three and a quarter cap. Uh, there's obviously a comp that, you know, one of our competitors just bought uh, from First Capital at a three cap with out of the money financing. So there's definitely people looking for this type of product as an inflation hedge and they're going to pay up for it. Yeah. And and uh, for those who might not know or are listening outside of Ontario, in Ontario, we have rent control for buildings constructed prior to November 2018 or occupied prior to November 2018. Yep. But buildings after that do not have the same rent control. So you could actually take advantage of rising rents, modulate your, you know, match your costs a little bit better versus the older multifamily assets. If if costs go up, you can't really do anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're we're seeing, I've never seen a tighter market, rental market than we've seen over the last three to six months. Structural vacancy continues to come in, immigration's ramping up. Uh, and so I, I could see the next three years be a bit of a golden era. Now we want to be mindful. What we do not want to do is uh, is displace existing tenants. And so this is a long game for us. And so you know we will very much you know be inside where general inflation is. As if you look at our first turnovers at the Waverly, we turned over the whole building, uh, and so the vast majority of those tenants. Uh, got the benefit of a very normal and, you know, relatively minimal rent increase. Uh, For us, it's really, really important. This is a long game, like I said. But if we get that unit back, we're seeing really tremendous growth uh, on, on, on rental tone. And so that, you know, partially offsets other rising costs that we have to deal with as an operating asset. Uh, but, you know, if you look at what a, an investor is going to actually see and what they're going to price, there's 32 assets that are without rent control and not very few of them, as you know, are for sale right now. So if you want unencumbered exposure and a proper inflation hedge with rolling 12-month leases, is that not that much product out there. So that, with the NOI torque that we're seeing in the market, uh, we think we're fundamentally at a low three cap rate today for the, for this product. Do you... Okay. I, I, anyways, I, I, have, I have my own opinion about that, but I, I do love the new multifamily asset class uh, for sure. Do you sometimes get concerned about, you know, the, the Kathleen Wynn's getting back in power and, well, obviously not her, but uh, a liberal or an NDP getting back in power and shifting those rent control measures to, to limit, you know, up to the, like, is that something that you... For sure. It's, hap- it's happened before. Yeah. It's 
you know, there's definitely risk attached. I think you're not going to get that with the, the current provincial party, with with uh, the Ford government. They've yeah. been very clear that they're not going to introduce that. I think it would be a disaster for the business, the industry in general. This is a supply-driven issue. This is not a rent-controlled issue. Yeah. And you need to do everything in your power, the, all three levels of government, to encourage more supply coming in the market. That's how you're going to normalize rent. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. And then you can see examples like that across Alberta or different markets where they don't have rent control. Could could you maybe, I'm not as as wise to the new Doug Ford proposals and what he's kind of, you know, I know some stuff on the smaller scale. Okay, a house can now have a, be changed to a three unit without going through a big arduous process. Are there some of those legislation changes that have affected uh, what you guys do? One in particular has, which is development charge rebates for market rental. Uh, so it's a sliding scale of 15, 20, 25% discounts to your DCs. Uh, so that they're in the process of writing the regs. They've done a really good job engaging with the private sector and helping shape uh, some of that language and getting feedback from us as to what makes sense, what doesn't. There is, uh, you know, another couple announcements that are happening at other le- levels of government over the next couple months that will be helpful as well. Is it going to fully offset the headwinds and other rising costs like financing? I'm not so sure, right? You really need to focus on execution. And I think those are the guys that I think are going to do well long-term going into a buying window, which I think will probably open up next year. Uh, maybe, maybe not, but I, I definitely think we're in an 18 month to 24 month, you know, tough slug. And I think being a disciplined investor in today's market eventually will pay off, but you got to be really, really disciplined. You got to make sure your house is in order. Where are you finding, where are you most interested in seeking deals? Like when you think about opportunity and maybe this could move into the golden era, are you looking center core at retail that could be kind of land bank like how are you plotting the the strategy in terms of opportunities yeah it's got there's got to be a transit angle we're definitely looking at urban fringe more so uh than ever uh and good core suburban urban master plans like vaughn city center mississauga city center and the like um we like student housing and we're starting to kind of spend some time there so that would be within a two-hour drive of toronto that would be a different program altogether uh but i think we're more and more we are pivoting away from the downtown core 12 months ago 24 months ago when the condo market was so strong we're now starting to get a lot of inbound calls with uh, landowners that have great dirt downtown and they're trying to unload it or find, uh, you know, li- liquidity. And so it's, we still think it's at yesterday's pricing, but they're very open to structure and it's a very different conversation. So I think that will only kind of continue to open up going into next year. And it's just being disciplined around that. I think that the, the, the partners and the investors that have access to capital and dry powder over the next 24 months, I think we'll be, you know, we'll only get stronger and, and get larger. Uh, and there'll be some pain through that process as well. So we are going to be as disciplined as possible and, you know, rest on, you know, not only our laurels of what we did or not rest on our laurels of what we've already done, but we want to be really prudent investors and learn from previous recessions that we saw that I personally saw and make sure that we could, you know, connect the dots as we deploy capital going into next year and, and the years beyond that. Right. Um, do you have any? Yeah. I've been um, hogging the microphone. Sorry. No, it's okay. <laughs> well, this is your asset class. So I imagine that you'd be all. I have, yeah. Um, you, you mentioned that, again, obviously, um, affordability being something more of a supply chain issue rather than something, you know, purely rent control based. Um, 
based on your opinion, do you think that there are any policies that you would like to see happen in order to obviously encourage more rental properties being developed? Because, you know, again, it's not necessarily a hot market to develop this type of asset versus condo where you're just in and out. I think. And as a follow-up, do you have Doug Ford's cell number? <laughs> Should we put him on the line right now? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we, um, yeah, like I, there's a couple things, right? So the that policy is one. I, I think what's not going to cost the city much, but they are trying to find ways to unlock it, is expediting approvals and getting projects into production. I appreciate, you know, some of our projects are large multi-tower complicated deals and it takes a while as everyone's kind of bursting at the seams, especially the city and getting other projects process, but getting, but expediting or focusing on, you know, rental projects that have a certain profile that are coming together with a school that are, you know, are doing all the right things around certain, you know, f- certain affordability offerings that we're bringing to the tables, especially in our Bloor Collegiate project uh, that we bought about a year ago. I think that makes, you know, delays kill deals. Delays are very, very costly. And so the more they could focus on people and developers that are well capitalized with focused capital that actively want to put into production projects that they have bought and are IR driven investors make a huge difference. And I would say the city tends to struggle with deciphering between that developer with that cost of capital and, you know, a private one-off guy. I feel like they say all the right things, but Uh, don't really, you know, kind of struggle to put certain things into action. And I think that would go a long way, certainly for developers like us. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Faster it happens. And again, if you have financing, interest rates are up. Yeah. Interest rates carry costs. It's all expensive. Um, Maybe we'll we'll wrap this up because I don't want this to be a one hour and I know you got stuff to do as well. Um, What's happening over the next few years it's difficult to plan over a 10-year horizon but you know three-year timeline where's Fitzrovia going to be yeah so uh I'd say market-wise we'll rehash what we just talked about you know I think there's going to be 18 to 24 months of uh turbulence I think we want to be extremely disciplined during that period of time uh we are getting into the value add space so buying class b class c apartments repositioning those over time and building a vertical around it we think that's a natural extension to our core business uh, we're also looking at the student housing game. So I think a light bulb went off on the back of our success at the Waverly and creating a student housing brand. And so we're going to be w- working on that. But it's really just blocking and tackling, right? Continue to harvest what we have. We are in the process of finalizing uh, our developed a core fund. Uh, so it's really a, an investment club or quasi fund. So it's anchored by our two largest existing investors be a $615 million raise. We're getting to our first close three to four weeks away. So for half that amount, we'll have 315 million raised. And so we'll finish off our fundraising first half of next year. And we're going to be really disciplined on the deployment of that capital. We're going to continue to invest in people, continue to invest in the culture here. We we have a unique private equity comm structure where everyone's got the ability to co-invest deal by deal and gets a piece of the promote or performance fees or equity upside, however you want to call it. Uh, and, you know, we want to continue to improve and increase platform value and allow us to get access to different forms of capital and but focus on those three core businesses. So class A, class B, and student housing. Wow. Um, okay. 
I, I love it. You know what I was just thinking about as you were speaking too, was that you're 40 years old, right? I'm 41. 41. Yeah. Sorry. I, we were talking about this because I remember yeah. the, the birthday post, but yeah. um, perhaps the most successful 41 year old that I know. Um, and, and I guess, you know, for a lot of our audience listening for Garrett and I here, we're always thinking about building these colossal companies as well, uh, but easier easier said than done. Yeah. And so, what what kind of advice would you give to somebody who's at the beginning stages? Maybe if you could give yourself advice right when you're about to start the company. Yeah, I, I would say uh, firstly, the, the definition of success is really wide, right? So yours is very different than lot. I think lots of people. I think the metric that people focus on, you know, up for debate. Hundred million dollars in the bank. <laughs> That's what it is. But but uh, if, I, if I if I go back to you know the the incorporation of our business and kind of what I've learned looking back, it is very taxing and uh, it's very lonely, right? And so I would be mindful with entrepreneurs. You have to love what you do. You have to be almost obsessed by it. If you don't, I don't know how you could do it. Right? It's too hard. Right. And so I would be, I'd be mindful of finding And I remember people coming into biz school, uh, uh, entrepreneurs and say, find your passion, find your passion. I used to roll my eyes. It is 100% true. Right. Though the person that is constantly, there's no work life balance, right? Like you're constantly thinking about what you're working on, you know, the team, the environment, you know, your ability to go and make smart deals improve the product, really drive value at the occupational level. Like you're always thinking about that. And so uh, if I didn't find that passion early days and I kind of fell into it backwards a little bit, specifically class A development, uh, you know, I, I, it'd be uh, it'd be a very different platform today. It'd be much smaller. I don't know if it'd actually be successful. Like it's just really, really hard. So I would say to anyone looking to be an entrepreneur, whether it's an entrepreneur or just focus on their own career, find something you really, really love, right? It's back to we're not splitting atoms. The person that's always thinking about what they're doing and is pushing themselves and are, you know, driven ethically uh, and all the things that come with that is the person that wins at the end of the day. I think people gravitate to that positive energy. People gravitate, you know, to that story, to that vision. And I think that that's really the special secret sauce of Fitzrovia is really around that. The, the, does that make sense? Like I, yeah, no, to it, me it that does. would have been very foreign uh, when I started the business, but it's, it, you know, looking back, it's, it, it was reality. I was thankful that I found my passion and it's absolutely been what's unlocked, you know, Fitzrovia to what it is today. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And yeah, people definitely uh, gravitate to the energy from somebody following something you know, a mission driven company, something that they love. So, yeah. um, okay. Well, well, thank you, Adrian. I, I want to acknowledge you also. Like I, first time you and I spoke was early in my career. Um, Greg Peacock said, Oh, my yeah. buddy Rocca, he's a, he's a weapon, <laughs> you know, Greg, uh, and, uh, and very true. And, you know, you've always been a very stand up guy. It's easy to see why you have, uh, over a hundred staff following you into, into battle, uh, to create, you know, beautiful company, beautiful mission, beautiful product. So um, thank you for your time. No, thank you. Thank you, Adrian. Awesome. Thank you. This was great. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much. Yeah.